We are delighted to be joined by Mark Lederbach and Evan Leno to talk about their brand new book, Ethics and Worship. Hello and welcome to Expositive Word, gentlemen. Oh, we're delightful to be here. Thank you for having us, David. Oh, thank Thanks for you. letting us join you today. Ah, it's a pleasure. Thank you, guys. You start off this book by saying that when you are asked what you do for a living and when you tell people that you teach ethics, you're often then met with the question, what is that? Let's start there. What is ethics and why have you both written a book about it? Well, I think for, for us, as we think about the discipline of ethics, we start with a different place than many folks do in culture. Most folks in culture think about how people do act or how they ought to act, how they ought to behave. However, if we do that, there's a danger that we can be in a place of either kind of relativism or leave us in a place of moralism. In fact, underneath a lot of what's going on in our social political realm, I think, is this real fundamental question, David, and that is whether or not morality is invented or if it's discovered. If it's invented, then it, it's subject to the whims of culture. It's subject to the whims of individual uh, preferences. But if it's discovered, then there's something underneath there. In fact, there's someone underneath there that ultimately we need to be paying attention to. So when we think about ethics, what we're thinking about primarily is a discovery of the God of the universe who's in his greatness and his goodness has created all things to function a certain way and desires for us to flourish in that. So that's how we think about the field of ethics. It's behavior, yes, but it's really character formation as a way for us to express to God our great love and thankfulness to him. So as Christians, when we talk about worship, perhaps we may quickly go to what we do on a Sunday, but we, are, we know that worship is more than the corporate worship we do. Tell us about that. And what do you guys mean by ethics as worship? When we talk about this, you know, like you said, so many people think worship, they think Sunday morning, uh, music, singing, um, preaching of the word, uh, those types of things. And while, while those certainly are a component of worship and what we're thinking about is worship in all of life. Every aspect of our lives is an act of worship. And um, you can use First uh, Corinthians 1031 as an example. You know, Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And so we're trying to get our focus away from just what a Sunday morning experience uh, with the body of believers may look like and say, no, our worship is, is every act of who we are and what we do and, and the type of people that we are becoming focused on the glory of God. And so when we do that, we, we try to focus uh, in the book, we try to focus our attention first primarily on who is God, so that we know that we are worshiping the God who has revealed himself, who created us, um, and then from there, make sure we are then worshiping God correctly, so then using um, not only the, the commands and instructions of scripture, but also this whole idea of discipleship, um, developing virtue, and, um, and becoming the people that God has created us to be, so that our whole focus, every aspect of our lives is worshipful, not just something that happens on a Sunday morning. Yeah, in fact, David, we would probably, just to add a little bit there, the, the biblical language that's interpreted both from the Hebrew and the Greek that has to do with the word worship, uh, it has the connotations of bowing down. And so uh, this idea for us, when we think about ethics as worship, is that in all of our life choices, we're kind of bowing down before the Lord. But what's crucial here, and Evan was touching on this, it's not just bowing down because God is great. It's also bowing down in thankfulness because he's so good. Yeah. And yeah. so our, our ethics then is motivated primarily by a love for this great God who is also the good God. 
uh, that's rescued us and desires our flourishing. Yeah, brilliant. What are the distinguishing marks of Christian ethics? Well, in our book, we've, we've marked out six of them, and we can touch on them real quick, and then uh, maybe some develop some more if you'd like to do that. So let me just touch on them real quick. But what we, we want to suggest that Christian ethics is marked or distinguished by several things. One of the first one is that it's Christocentric, that it's obviously the name Christian ethics puts Christ at the center. But really, even many, many folks who do, quote unquote, Christian ethics don't emphasize the person of Christ. And so we do that in the book. Response. Uh, the second one would be that our, our response in ethics is one of thanksgiving to um, because of salvation, not earning our salvation, which yeah. I think a lot of moralism is about. Thirdly, it's scripture oriented or scripture ordered that we're obeying the Lord as he describes it for us. Fourth, it's embodied then by a form of love for God that we would describe as an obedient love. The fifth point we bring out is that it should be discipleship focused, that in other words, it's not just about certain behaviors, but becoming a certain kind of person who uh, is an apprentice, if you will, underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. And then finally, the sixth point we bring out is that it should be missionally oriented, that God is not just interested in our own personal behaviors, but that the entire world would be filled with the glory of the Lord as the, as the waters cover the sea, as uh, Habakkuk chapter two tells us. Yeah. Let's just build on that a second. I'm sure you guys have seen Ray Comfort when he's doing his street evangelism. He always goes to the law. And, and you know, when he, 99 times out of 100, will go up to someone and ask him if they, you know, they're confident where they're going to be going in eternity. And often they'll go, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a good person. And there's this works-based salvation that's just so prevalent within the world, right? What you guys are talking about, this isn't the cause of salvation, like you were just saying, Mark. This is the response to that great God, right? Response to that salvation. Yeah, you know, the whole idea of doing Christian ethics implies something. It implies that someone is a Christian, someone is a believer. And um, and so I think when we have experienced um, the the magnificent grace of God and um, and through salvation, um, that it reorders or recenters our lives in such a way that um that we can't help but giving thanks. You know, the the whole idea of receiving something that you didn't deserve and um, and living that out on a daily basis. Um, I know I know here for us where where we live and work, a lot of times you, you run into this cultural Christianity of people just assume, um, well, you grew up in this part of the country, and so therefore you must be a Christian because it's it's so embedded in our culture. Especially where I am, uh, I'm in uh, the state of Mississippi, and very much the Bible Belt, and uh, and Christianity is is part of the the culture. Um, but what we're getting at is is moving beyond that culture and saying, no, if I'm living this out on a daily basis, it is every day, every breath, every action, every thought is a response to God's gracious gift of salvation that He's provided for us. And we can't help but but live that out. Yeah. We can't help but live in a, a life of thanksgiving and worship to God. Yeah. 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 And I think just on the other side of that, David, I think the uh, if you go out of uh, a Christianized culture into a post-Christian environment where people are moving away or don't even really have a plausibility structure from a Christian point of view on how to understand their world, then God can oftentimes be considered maybe almost like a, a benevolent grandfather who just wants to smile and say, do whatever you want and everything will be okay as long as you're spiritual in some kind of mystical or uh, amorphous way. But 
I think what we're also recognizing is that if indeed God did create the universe, then there are times when a loving father should say, yes, I love you, but no, you can't have your way. Or to say that more positively is, yes, I love you. Let me show you a more excellent way, as Paul yeah. would say in 1 Corinthians 12. So what we're after is trying to understand if God exists and if he has created this world, then we want to just be away from cultural Christianity or the post-Christian view and understand that God is for us. He loves us, but there are particular ways in which he wants us to flourish. And that's where our ethics comes back. To. Yeah. Why is Genesis chapter one, verse one, such a crucial verse for understanding the foundations of Christian ethics? That, that's where it all begins. I mean, not to be cliche about it, but this is where God begins to reveal who he is. Um, he, he is the creator God. He has created us. Um, he, he did not, you know, he's not obligated to anything. And so, so we, we see here that God has chosen to create. Um, and so we begin there and, and it's central uh, to begin in Genesis 1, because this is the foundation of um, who God is and our understanding of how he's revealed himself to us. And, um, and so we have to start there. And as you continue on through that chapter and, and we see um, God creating the rest of the world and including the creation of humans, um, we, we begin to get a glimpse of uh, who he created us to be, um, what God's design for us was. Um, we refer to this, you know, as we, and, you know, ultimately you go on into Genesis three, obviously, and you have the fall, um, and God's design of redemption is then to restore us to this right relationship with him, um, that ultimately will be fulfilled, um, in eternity, uh, fully. Um, but, but what we describe that as a phrase that we use in the book, uh, numerous times is the idea of being fully human. And so what it means to be fully human is to be created and to be living in such a way as God created us. And so we, we see that happening there in Genesis chapter one. Yeah. Um, so Genesis one, one in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He, this is God beginning to reveal himself to us. And so just as, as Jesus described in his parable um, in uh, Matthew chapter seven uh, about uh, building your house on the sand, on the sand versus building your house on a rock. You know, we, we want to get the foundation right. Yeah. And so it begins with God's character and his nature um, and builds from there. Yeah. And I think on top of that, it's one of the things that's interesting about if you the average reader who picks up their Bible and opens to Genesis chapter one, they'll oftentimes describe the first two chapters as being about the creation. But Genesis 1-1 tells us in the beginning, God is the way the passage starts. And so the, the story is really about God. And so if we if we read about the creation, we should pause and say, if this creation is stunning, how much more stunning is the God of the creation? And I think that's what the first two chapters are trying to open for us is, yeah, this creation's awesome. But the one who created it is the one who is the master. He's the Lord. He's the good, benevolent God who wants us to know him first. And so... Uh, that then drives a lot of where we go in the book. Yeah. How should the realization that the glory of God is the final goal of creation shape how we understand our own moral choices and the entire discipline of ethics? Well, I would say following quickly on what I just said before, if Genesis 1, 1 and, uh, and really the first two chapters of Genesis are about God, then I think that does a fundamental reorientation of how we should read the Bible. That frequently we start the, with the Bible with my story and wondering how God's going to fit into my story. But if from the first words of the Bible, the story is about God, 
then now all of a sudden I'm starting to place my story in a much larger story. And I'm trying to find my and orient my world in light of God's world that he's, he's the one who I has to be um, everything oriented toward. So if his story is as Psalm 90 verse two says from everlasting and to everlasting, and mine is maybe 80 or 90 years, then it's probably the chief point of arrogance in humanity. If I try to fit God into my story, yeah. On the other hand, if he's glorious, then me living my life in light of that story is, is huge. So this, uh, this point about God being the final or his glory being the final thing, is it's a reorienting point for the way that we think about the whole discipline of ethics. Tell us about the meta-narrative of scripture and how that leads us to worship. So as we're, we're talking through the, the meta-narrative, we're, we're talking about the overarching storyline of the Bible. Um, what does it tell us big picture wise? And so um, we follow a, a classic pattern in our book of, of talking about creation, fall, uh, redemption and restoration. And, um, and so beginning there in Genesis with creation, um, the fall happens shortly thereafter in chapter three. Um, and then and much of the rest of scripture is then the process of redemption, God's plan for redemption, his plan for his people, ultimately culminating there with um, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, uh, making the way for us to be um, reunited with God, um, and then ultimately the restoration that is to come, you know, it's the sanctification process, but ultim- ultimate restoration coming um, in, uh, when we're united with, with God uh, for eternity. And so, and so that's the, the big picture. So in much the same way that Mark was just talking about, um, when we get that idea of the big picture meta narrative of scripture, we then begin to see that we're not the center of the universe. Yeah. Um, everything, the, the story of scripture does not revolve around us. It revolves around God and, and his, and who he is and what he has done. And then, and then we, we fit in, you know, at, at a certain point in that big picture um, so again, it, it takes the focus off ourselves. So many, and I think this is the beauty of Christian ethics, um, but, but particularly Christian ethics done well is that it takes the focus off of ourselves yeah. because so many other, uh, particularly secular systems of ethics, um, the focus is on the self. Who am I? And ultimately they're, they're really focused on um, the goodness of the person and, and why I should think about myself as a good person. Um, whereas instead, we, we look at this big meta narrative of scripture and we say the goodness of God, the, the shamefulness of myself and my sin, but again, the, the greatness of God providing for salvation and the goodness of him to extend his grace to us um, and, and give us mercy so that we were not the recipients of uh, the judgment that we deserve. Um, and then, um, and so again, pulling that focus off ourselves, yeah. seeing where we then fit in, um, and knowing that we, we are part of God's story. Um, not that God comes in and, and makes us, a, makes himself a part of our story. Yeah. It, it's all about his, uh, his story of scripture. Yeah. yeah. How does sin and the fall impact our ability to live ethically and thereby worship God rightly? Yeah, so building on what Evan just said there, this is really a great question, David. It's really helpful for us as we think through what's going back to your earlier question about what's distinctive about, about Christian ethics, because 
if the sin and the fall has impacted us like scripture tells us it does, it makes a massive difference in two specific ways. So let me see if I can lay those out a little bit for us here briefly. In one sense, the scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 19, in Romans chapter 1, and in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, it tells us that sin has caused a darkening effect on the human ability to see the world correctly. So because of this, we're, we're kind of cut off from a, a knowledge we were created for and that the Holy Spirit can re, reignite in us after salvation. So because of this, it, it, it shrinks the way we see our world. We have a scripture says a darkening of our understanding. Based on that, closely related to that, it also then creates, sin in the fall creates a different plausibility structure by the way people want to see and figure out their world. So one way to think about this, let me give you a metaphor, is that people will, in, in essence, try to, to, to do a, the puzzle of life without the box top of the puzzle to tell them how to put their lives together. And what sin does is it basically steals that box top so that people are left with lots of puzzle pieces and they're literally just trying to fit them together. So this piece might be their sexuality, and this piece might be their politics, and this piece might be their family, and this piece might be their desires. And without the box top, it's hard to know how to put all those things together. So because of this, what sin does is it creates a context in which people, they can see the commands of God and maybe basically understand the language of them, but they can't understand how it's all, they can't discern, as, as Paul would say, how that all fits together. So give you another little illustration of this. When we think of the scriptures and the commands of scripture behind every thou shalt not in scripture, God always has at least three positives. One of those is to protect us from something bad. Another one is to provide something better. And thirdly, which kind of gets at the title of our whole book is it's also meant to give all of humanity a, a context in which they can flourish as God is maximally glorified. But when sin enters and shrinks our ability to understand these things, then those same commands that are meant to provide and protect and to help us flourish now are seen as something that uh, a mean taskmaster is holding us accountable to, and we should throw off and instead try to self-actualize or, or kind of identify ourselves apart from this great structure. And so it's, it's, it's massively problematic, not only for the individual but for society as a whole, because it really invites in uh, not only relativism, but cultural relativism. And that's obviously very dangerous. Yeah. What did Jesus mean when he said that God is looking for worshippers who worship him in spirit and truth? It's one of the one of those classic questions uh, that uh, we see in scripture um, there in the Gospels. You know, essentially what we're what we're trying to argue for in the book when when we're using the language of worshippers who worship um, God in spirit and truth is, is one on, on the spirit side, we're talking about, um, worshiping God in spirit requires and depends on the work of the Holy spirit, um, in shaping our character, um, so that we can be conformed to the image of Christ. Yeah. And so, um, as we, as we worship him through, through our ethics, um, it is, it is dependent on the Holy spirit. We can't do it without him. Um, and so, again, this is why uh, a, a proper ethics of worship is one that, that only works within a Christian context um, as we are filled um, and dwelled and empowered uh, by the Holy Spirit. When we talk about worshiping in truth, um, we're talking about that worship in truth um, depends on Christ 
um, who is the who is the truth and the living word. Um, and then also we're talking about scripture um, that is our authoritative guide uh, for all areas of our lives. Um, and so this this brings to mind, you know, John one, um, where we see that uh, in the beginning was the word, um, the word was with God and the word was God. And then and then we continue on and and see Jesus talking about I'm the way, the truth and the life. So we, we see Jesus as the living word, as the truth. And um, and then we see scripture as truth and providing us the, the groundwork and the guidance that we need for um, for following God's design for our lives. And, and living a flourishing life and, and fully human. Um, we, we note in the book, there's a quote from D.A. Carson that uh, is, is an interesting take on this and helpful take on it. And he says that spirit and truth in this context of worshiping God and spirit and truth, spirit and truth are not two separable characteristics of worship that must be offered. It must be in spirit and truth. So essentially, God-centered, made possible by the gift of the Holy Spirit and impersonal knowledge of the conformity to God's word made flesh, the one who is God's truth, the faithful exposition and fulfillment of God and his saving purposes. And so, so really, if, if you want to think of it, worship God in spirit and truth, in many respects, we're talking about the second and third person of the Trinity. Yeah. Um, and then the authoritative scriptures that God inspired through his Holy Spirit to the, the authors who wrote them. How easy is it for us to create a God, you know, or an idol, a false God in our own image? And, and how much of a problem is that in today's society? We see things like the prosperity gospel, where we get this back to front understanding of, of who God really is and almost this genie-like relationship that's built into a lot of these kind of um, theology. Yeah, that's really a good question. So you're, if we kind of trigger off that last section, we were just talking about it and Evan was developing. So in John 4, when Jesus says uh, he's seeking true worshipers and, and those who worship the Father will worship in spirit and truth, that Evan was just touching on. It's a beautiful Trinitarian picture of uh, the God who is the Father who creates all things and the Holy Spirit and the, and the Son who is the truth. And as we try to respond to this great God, those uh those three persons of the one God are, are the way we're caught up into a, a more beautiful picture. The danger is if you take any one of those pieces out, then we begin to make God in our own image. Yeah. And we yeah. uh, try to just pull out and cherry pick, if you will, places where we think, uh, I like this about what God's taught. And so that's going to become central to us. Whereas the, the crucial role of the Holy Spirit here in our lives is because we're broken sinners, we need the Holy Spirit to regenerate us. We need the Holy Spirit, as Evan was talking about in Ephesians 5, talks about to give us power or to empower us to make right decisions. Um, when the word tells us the right thing to do, we need the spirit to then give us the ability to do that. The spirit is really important within the, the whole discipline of Christian ethics because, and this is oftentimes underplayed in our individualism of the West that we tend to think about, but the Holy Spirit unites us one to another, David, and it's it's really crucial, and this even gets into the way we may talk about later about how to read the scriptures best, but I need to read the scriptures with my brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, and, and as the Holy Spirit unites us, it helps us to think about that I'm not just out for me or number one or getting my life right, but my sin impacts others as well as my holiness impacts others. We're a part of a family, 
the Holy Spirit, uh, Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit prays for us and intercedes for us with the Father. And the Holy Spirit then is also crucially for the way that we think about shaping our ethics and our personal characters. Philippians 1.6 tells us that God who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so that we, we understand it's the Holy Spirit who's working within us to complete us, to make us more and more like Christ. So we can be like Evan was talking about earlier, more fully human as we were designed to be. So unfortunately, many folks, even in evangelicalism or in conservative Christianity, tend to think of ethics primarily about obedience to the word. But when that comes, we end up kind of grinding out our faith as opposed, and just in human flesh and human effort, whereas the Holy Spirit is, is desiring to give us the power to live and to make the next choice and the next choice after that. Yeah. What do you guys mean when using the term holy sweat? How does hard work and practice in the Christian life fit in with the idea that we're saved by Christ alone, by grace alone, and through faith alone? Evan, if you don't mind, let me jump in on this one first, just because I love this little term. uh, I'm not the originator of this. Evan and I didn't coin this phrase. It comes from a little book called Holy Sweat by a guy named uh, Tim Hansel. I think he wrote it years and years ago, but it had a a real interesting impact. Just the phrasing together um, has really helped me. I've done a lot of sports in my life. You might have to take it by faith as now that I'm an older man, but I used to be a decent (laughs) athlete. And uh, you know, when I think about the sports as a metaphor for how we live the Christian life, Paul talks about us to buffet our bodies and to, to work hard so that someday we won't be disqualified. And I think we live in a day and age now where we've lost the sense we're working hard for things important matters. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so when we talk about sanctification, sanctification has two elements to it. One is that that which God does to us through the Holy Spirit and the work of Christ on our behalf. But sanctification also has a progressive part in which we participate with God in becoming more of what he designed us to be. And I think what we what we tend to lose in Christianity is that sometimes worship is hard. It's not just an emotional response. Sometimes it makes difficult choices time after time after time so that as I, I initially make a choice, that choice then becomes a habit. And over time, that habit then becomes my character. And a lot of times the difference between my particular choice and my ultimate character is a lot of hard work in between. And so I think a lot of times that means that we have to be focused on holiness, but sometimes it's going to take hard work to get there. I, you know, I mean, take even an eating habit as an example. I would love to just gorge myself on M&Ms all day long and or, or a pack of Oreos. And when I know that's going to be bad for me, it's going to take discipline to say no and extending that over time might actually help me be a better person, not just let a thinner person. And so I think that's part of kind of how we think through that. Yeah. Evan, what do you think? Yeah. You know, the, the whole idea of passivity in the Christian life should be completely foreign. And so when we're talking about Holy sweat, it is not being passive, but constantly working. And the whole idea of discipleship, um, and discipline implies work. And, um, and so, you know, we, we have to be at work. We have to be moving. Um, otherwise, really, in, in our Christian walk, if we, if we just kind of sit back and say, all right, I'm good. Yeah. I don't have to worry about anything else. We're, we're, not, it's, we're really not sitting still. We're actually moving backwards at that point. But the work requires us to, to move forward. And it's, and as Mark mentioned, it's, it's not always easy. 
Yeah. And, um, and so it's just like getting up in the morning and going to exercise. Um, you know, I, I kind of think of it when I get up and, and go walk every morning uh, for a couple of miles. Um, if I don't break a sweat, have I really done much? And, um, and so in this sense, you know, in our, in our own personal discipleship, if, if we haven't had to work at it, if it hasn't had moments of difficulty, are we, are we doing much yeah. or are we just sitting back and resting um, in, in our past uh, development in the Christian life? Yeah. Yeah. David, let me, if you don't mind, let me just jump in one more time on that. Just give another more specific example for some of our listeners who might be thinking about this. We're in a world that's hypersexualized right now. Um, you could even describe it as pornified. Um, and so that the, the vast majority of men and increasingly with women have been exposed to large amounts of pornography and it's really shaping even the entire sexual ethic uh, globally, I think on that. So if we take pornography as an example of what Evan and I were just speaking to. Once a, once a man or, or a woman starts to indulge uh, a sexualized and a pornographic uh, world, that's going to begin to really even shape the way that their mind functions. It has a, uh, our neuroplasticity is affected in this. And so we'll, the, the looking at the porn releases dopamine, it becomes kind of an addictive behavior. So if a person is in that and they've come to Christ, a lot of times they'll be really frustrated to say, I'm trying to not look at porn anymore, and, and yet I'm wondering why the Holy Spirit hasn't just released me from this. And a lot of this sanctification process, I think many of our listeners can, can experience this even from their own memories of this, is I can try for two weeks on my own and try to put all the discipline patterns in place, but then I'll find myself going back to these choices. Well, I think what, what we're talking about holy sweat in some of those hard places is that I, I need to be willing to say, I need the body of Christ to hold me accountable. I need to be willing to say, I have to memorize scripture. I need to be willing to say that I may even need some counseling, but I do know that I can, I, the Holy Spirit promises me, I, I don't have to make that choice the next time to look at that pornographic image. And so praying for the Holy Spirit to fill me and then working hard in line with the Holy Spirit to not make that next choice. And then the next choice and then the next choice, and what can happen is a person can begin to expand out their time between exposures to porn so that over a period of time, something has changed in their character as the Holy Spirit and the Word richly dwell in them and begin to transform them. Yeah. So yeah. This, is, this yeah. takes hard work. It takes what we're describing here as holy sweat. Yeah. Evan just touched on discipleship. How important is discipleship within the discipline of ethics? Discipleship is really, it's the core of it. Um, and so, and it's not just, Mark brought this up too. It's, it's not just my own personal discipleship, my own focus on my walk. It's doing this within community. Yeah. Um, so for example, um, I'm, I'm part of a, uh, our church has these, uh, men's Bible reading groups. So there's, there's five of us men that are, um, we're all generally contemporaries. One, one of them is, um, about 10 or 12 years younger than the rest of us. Um, but we're all generally in the same age range. Um, but uh, every day we are, we each have assigned reading. And, and so we, we read that. Um, we use a, a, an app on our phone to do that. Um, but then we, we have conversations about it. And so we ask certain questions about the passage of scripture. And so then what happens over the course of the week, we're interacting back and forth. We see each other at church. On, on Sunday or Wednesday or another or another day. And um, 
And we have these interactions. And sometimes these interactions over a particular passage of scripture may, may last two or three weeks as we're, we're kind of hashing out not only what does this mean, but how does that then apply to my life? And, and that's, that's what discipleship looks like. Yeah. You know, it, it is, it is not just our, our focus on our own personal behaviors um, and following after Christ, but, but doing it within community. And, and so what our, what we're attempting to, to get at for the discipline of ethics is to say, it is, it is your own personal growth in Christ, but it is also your placement within the body of Christ so that others can come alongside, um, challenge you when you, when you choose poorly, um, push you uh, to follow Christ, um, and, and you to do the same for others so that we're, we're walking down this path together. Um, and so that whole discipleship process is really, is really central to the concept of ethics as worship. I know somebody's yeah. going to ask in the comments just before you jump in, Mark. What is the app that you? What is the app that you use, Evan? Uh, we're we're just using Marco Polo, the what? little video chat app, and um, and we you know we have a, a sign, we have an assigned reading you know so this summer um, this summer we're going through Psalms and Proverbs um, over the course of last uh, school year, so August through uh, May we went through um, uh, we actually went through the New Testament. Um, and so each of we take five days a week, you know, I'm this over the summer, I'm, I'm on Fridays, which means I often post on Saturday or sometimes Sunday. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's what we're doing. And we have, we have some basic questions. We, we just ask, what did we, um, what do you notice in the passage? Uh, what part of this passage, uh, what do you wonder about the passage? So something doesn't, isn't clear, doesn't make sense. Um, or, or you just have a question about it. So we've been we've been reading through some imprecatory psalms um, recently, and so we're asking the question: All right, what is this? How does this play out? You know, are we supposed to be praying imprecatory psalms against our enemies? Um, you know, and and then and then we we ask: You know, how does this how does this passage then specifically apply to my life um, and to our lives? And then and then we we share prayer requests and pray for each other. Um, but it's it's fun because then you know I'll post something, and then an hour later somebody's watched it. And they say, you know, I've asked a question about the passage. They're like, oh, well, I read this. And they're, they're chiming in. Or, or I thought, I wondered about this. This doesn't make sense to me, but you seem to explain it there. And so it's, it's been that's, a lot of fun. Excellent. You may well end up getting quite a few Twitter requests to join this group, Evan, now. So they go from <laughs> five to 500. Who knows? Mark? Well, I, can't, I can't take credit for it. It's uh, our church. Uh, our, one of the ministers at our church is the one who's gotten them started at our church, at least. I'm not sure where he got the idea. <laughs> it sounds great. Mark, I'm sorry. I, I cut across you there. Did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, sure. Just just real briefly in regard to discipleship, you know, the word discipleship has its root in the word discipline. And so when when we think about that, we we very tightly describe or define discipleship as disciplining our worship patterns. And so as we think, if all of life is worship, then disciplining every area of the life but that's, it's crucial to not think of discipline as a negative term when we think about it in the gospel. It's actually uh, a, a God-ordered kind of love that's willing to shape ourselves for something better. So we do that in community by hopefully we all have a Paul in our life that's speaking to us. We have Barnabases who are we're living life with. But we also, and this is a big piece of this, we also have Timothys that we're training and that we're helping to come along in their faith. And part of that training is involved with evangelism too. So when we think of ethics we're not only thinking about culture wars and us against them, we're actually 
trying to say, if we're going to have cultural change, then the ethical discussion becomes the chief point of conversation in which we can now enter into evangelistic discussions with people on a global level to say, hey, you know, this is my view on capital punishment or war or on sexuality. Uh, what is your view? And, and let's compare why we think differently about them and talk about what's what's underneath that. So evangelism is a huge part of how we think about the discipleship um, element of, of ethics. Yeah, really helpful. What is the nature and character of scripture as it relates to understanding ethics as worship? And how does it function as a guidebook for Christians? Yeah, I'll jump in on this one to, to think through on that. One of the ways we talk about in the book, we're recapturing some language from a couple authors that wrote uh, 40, 50 years ago, when we're, we speak of the scriptures, we want to describe the scriptures as, uh, well, we, well, let me start actually a little different place. We understand the scripture to be inerrant, to be in, inspired, to be infallible, because it comes from the nature and character of God, it's immutable. So therefore, it's our, it's our guide for life and practice. So that's kind of the first way I want to answer your question. But then when we think about it in that context, David, we want to think about the scriptures then giving us two big handles for how to understand life. One of those is that scripture provides for us a picture of, of reality. So this meta-narrative discussion we were in. So scripture then reveals the nature of reality for us. And then once that large umbrella is then made clear for us about creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, scripture then reveals for us morality. So it, it functions to give us revealed reality and revealed morality so that when we have the things that you are supposed to do, it fits within this larger picture of here's the way you're going to most flourish because God designed the world that way. So it's really important when you're doing the discipline of ethics is to not just focus on the commands isolated from this larger picture of how you see the larger story. And we do, that's a huge part of what we're trying to set forth yeah. in our book so that yeah. people can and see this both and structure of how God's uh, revealed his best ways for us. Yeah. And, uh, to, to add on to that, it even um, brings in to brings to bear kind of what John Calvin's discussion was on, on three uses of the law. Um, and so when he's talking about scripture and the law, he, he's, he talks about three uses. He talks about a, a condemning use. So that's the revealing kind of like a mirror for us to look and see, Oh, here's who I really am. Here's my sinfulness you know, all the ugliness of it. Um, and then the restraining nature to, to prevent us from doing things that, um, that violate God's, God's will and God's law. Um, but then this whole guidebook concept is, is really Calvin's third use of the law, which is its guiding function to point us and direct us sometimes, sometimes even to hold our hand and walk with us um, and through, all right, what, what are the, what are the positive steps we are taking as we, as we move down this process of sanctification? And, um, and so it's really kind of bringing Calvin's concepts uh, to bear on, on this whole idea of a guidebook as well. Yeah. There are lots of law and commands in the Bible. How can we know how to best respond to God with worship by knowing what he wants for us today? There are many commands and laws in scripture that God has made very clear to us. And, and Mark mentioned earlier that in addition to the, the thou shalt nots, um, there are all of these positive components um, of, of who God wants us to be and, and the positive components behind many of the, the prohibitions that we read in scripture. Um, but it, 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 what, we don't want to, what we don't want ethics as worship to turn into and what we're specifically hoping to avoid and 
and teach against is some type of legalistic Phariseeism. Um, we don't want a bunch of little Pharisees running around saying, no, you're not allowed to do this. You took too many steps. You know, you, you turned on a light switch, you know, whatever, whatever it is, you know, that's what we're, we're hoping to avoid. And so, so what we see as the commands or the role of the commands and the laws and scripture is they inform the virtuous character that ultimately we're going for. Um, so to use kind of in the, the vernacular of the discipline of ethics, um, we're, we're talking about a virtue ethic. Who am I? What type of person am I becoming? And, and probably one of the, the downfalls of, a pro, of looking at virtue ethics that always comes when you're studying this is somebody says, okay, that sounds great. I want to be, I want to be a good person. I want to be a disciple. I want to be fully human and flourishing but you haven't told me how to get there. You haven't told me what to do. And so Mark kind of mentioned this earlier, um, is these, these choices become habits, become character. And so the, the character is what we're going for. The, the virtue is what we're going for. How we get there is informed by these commands and rules and laws. And so we're not following, we're not following the commands and laws simply for the sake of following yeah. and being obedient. We're, we're following them um, with an end goal in mind of achieving a particular virtuous character. And, and so that's, that's really the, that's how we move from that, the law and commandment to worship yeah. is the laws and commands inform the behavior and the choices that become our habits, that become our character and, and in doing so and becoming the type of person God has created us to be, we are worshiping him and ultimately, you know, striving after this end goal of virtuous character. Yeah, we put John chapter 14, verses 15 and 21 central to this answer, because in those passages, Jesus says, if you love me, which is a character trait, then you'll obey me, which is a behavior according to the commands. So they always go together. And we never want to pit them against each other. But if you want to be a lover of God, then according to Jesus, you need to be an obeyer of God. Yeah. So that's yes. how we would put those together. What are some good practical tips to help people plan to make good moral decisions? Um, what we like to kind of describe in the book and, and help our students think through is there's some things you have to do before you ever encounter a situation. So a lot of times when we're thinking about making good moral decisions, we're thinking, all right, I find myself in a situation um, I have a choice to make. I'm, I'm less than certain of what I'm supposed to do. And so a lot of times we get in that situation, we think, oh, no, you know, I've got to make a decision and, and I'm not prepared. And so what we encourage uh, in the first place is that there needs to be some advanced preparation um, and, and some of that's advanced spiritual preparation. So, first of all, it's examining ourselves, you know, in a, a second Corinthians 13, five kind of way, examining ourselves to see whether we're part of the faith. If, you, if you're going to live out ethics as worship, you have to first know where, where you are um, in relationship to God. Um, and then also you need to be pursuing uh, spiritual formation, discipleship as, as part of that process. So that's before you ever get into a situation needing a choice, that's, those are basic, you know, discipleship components of what we need to be doing. So then what happens now you're, now you're in a situation. So the first thing you got to do is you got to identify what the issue is. What what is the, the particular situation you're facing? Um, and so uh, you know, Mark Mark in an earlier question 
brought up the, the question of pornography. You're, you're sitting there and you're in front of your computer and you're, you're tempted to click on, on that link or whatever it is, you know, identify what's the situation, what is, what is in front of me, what is the choice to be made? Um, so you identify the situation, then because you've already examined yourself prior to this, then prayerfully submit that situation and yourself to the Lord. And I, you know, I can't do this on my own. This is the, this is that whole idea of the Holy Spirit living through us, um, empowering us. Um, so prayerfully submit this to the Lord. Um, and then you, then, you know, and a lot of this, it sounds like this big, long process. A lot of this is happening very quickly, you know, identify the relevant data as it relates to the various, um, components of what we structure as an ethical method. And so you're asking questions like, you know, what would worshiping God fully look like in this situation? Um, will this choice help me become more conformed to the image of, of Christ? Um, is the choice I'm about to make in accordance with the commands of scripture? Um, and then, so those are, those are kind of the top level concepts. And then, and then next we get to kind of the contextual concepts, you know, what are the circumstances that I'm facing in this situation? How, and how are they going to affect the choice that I make? Um, what are the likely outcomes um, that are going to result from the, the various actions or decisions that I'm making? Um, and then how are the people involved in that situation going to be impacted by my decision? Um, again, we're, especially on those, those last couple, we're not omniscient. We don't know exactly how that's going to play out. Um, we can speculate, um, but I, we have to be aware of the context though. And that's, what's helping us have the context of the situation and the people around us. Cause a lot of times we will make a decision and not even think about how this is going to affect those around us. So then once you've kind of worked your way through that, um, then you kind of, you can list them out, think through the, the alternatives. What are your options? Um, and then, uh, and then you're going to filter the, those kind of contextual questions, those last three, you know, what are the circumstances? What are the outcomes? How are the people going to be affected? Kind of filter those back through the, how does this, how is this going to help me worship God? How's it going to make me conform to the image of God? Um, am I acting in accordance with the commands of scripture? And so then on the basis of filtering those contextual questions back through worship and scripture um, or spirit and truth, um, then you make a decision. And you act on it um, and recognizing that we're sinful, we're fallen. And sometimes we're going to make the wrong decision. Yeah. Um, and when we make the wrong decision, recognize it and, you know, seek forgiveness, seek to rectify that, that problem. But hopefully if you're, if you're submitting yourself that way, then the process, um, you know, ideally will work out well. And, um, and you're, as you're seeking conformity to the image of Christ. Yeah. That's really helpful. Thank you. How does the gospel provide a just remedy for sin and sinfulness? Yeah, this is a great question, David. Thank you for this one, because it kind of brings us full circle <clears throat> back to the whole question of what ethics as worship is, and particularly what Christian ethics is, because as Christians, the entire moral project, the entire ethical project is really based upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the, the second person of the Trinity. And so when we think about how the gospel provides a just remedy for sin, and for sinfulness, you're really kind of asking, how do I best live an ethical life? Um, and so when we think about the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. You know, God's character is such that he's holy and he's righteous. 
And this holiness and righteousness means that there's, the, there's no sin in his presence, nor can there be. And in addition to that, 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 that God is grieved by sinfulness that's in the world, the injustices that are in the world, things that don't conform to his plan. And so because of that, he's, he's good and just to actually bring accountability to human beings. And so that's what we find as sinners. Um, the reason we feel guilty is because we truly are guilty. There is a standard of truth there, and so there's a, a penalty that's due for that. But the great news of the gospel and why Christian ethics has to be Christian, it has to have Christ at the center, is that God is not just holy, and he's not only just, but he's also loving, and he's gracious, and he's merciful, and he's, he's good. And because of that, God himself provided a way for us to not only be rightly reconciled with God, but then to live again as he designed us to in the beginning. And that was by Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, dying on the cross for our sins and receiving the just penalty that we were all due. He's, he's the completely sufficient sacrifice for each one of our sins. And because of that, when a person places their faith in Christ, the gospel, this good news, provides not only a remedy to sin, but it now provides the platform for us to live the way God originally designed us to be. So really, it's through Christ that when God said for us in the beginning— as male and female to go and to shape the entire world, it's now again through Christ that we can be redeemed to that original purpose and live for his glory because sin has been taken care of and God has made us again aligned with him properly. So living out the gospel then means not only my own life living for the glory of God, but inviting as many others to this great journey as well. And uh, that's really central yeah. to our book. Yeah. That's wonderful. Well, congratulations for writing this book. And I've really enjoyed speaking to you both. The time's gone so fast. This is a big book covering lots of ground. What were your favorite sections or topics to work on? Evan, you want to jump in on that first? Uh, sure. Um, you know, I, I got to give credit to Mark on this one um, because this, you know, is these is for full disclosure, Mark, I was one of Mark's students. Um, we'll not say how long ago that was, um, but he was, he was the one who first kind of, introduced me to a lot of these concepts uh, years ago. And, um, and so the, the work, particularly the chapter on the Holy Spirit, um, A, I think it's very unique for what we're attempting to do um, in an ethics book. Um, but B, it was, it was very personally edifying uh, to me um, to, to walk through that. Um, and, um, and particularly as Mark kind of helped craft um, that chapter, and, and I'm coming alongside of him um, to do that. Uh, that was that was really edifying to me. Um, the other chapter that I, I particularly enjoyed working on, um, and it's just because this has been an area of, of interest for me for years in my teaching and research, is uh, the chapter on marriage, um, and um, and just kind of seeing how that you know. It, on one hand, it, it, I love writing on that, and on the other hand, it's um, it's a personal struggle at times because you're like, uh, okay, here's what scripture says. Am I really living this out in my own, my own marriage, my own home? Um, so it's a know that as we, as we walk through this, you know, we're asking ourselves these questions and saying, you know, I, I, I have to be consistent in the way that I live this out as well. And so it's a, so we're challenging ourselves in these, in these chapters. Yeah, I, boy, Evan, that's so, so good, because if you want to discover how big of a hypocrite you are, try to write an ethics book. It's remarkable, <laughs> and it really shows you your own personal need for the gospel and the good work of Christ in your own life. 
David, I'd probably say I, I love for us to think about the, the whys behind moral behavior. So for me, the first half of the book was was really delightful to write and think about for really, uh, really two decades. But in the last couple of years, as we've tried to flesh this out, but it, to be a little more specific to the way you asked your question, there is, and the second half of the book has a lot of applied chapters. And for me, given where we are globally right now, I wrote, uh, Emma and I wrote together a chapter on what justice is and how to best think about justice and social impact. And then the follow-up chapter to that is how to think about race yeah. And the yeah. fact that God's made one human race with lots of ethnicities and what is the impact of us thinking biblically about that. Those two chapters, I would say, I don't know if I'd describe them as my favorite, but I think they're so poignant for the moment we're in um, that I'm really glad we had the opportunity to write those. Yeah, brilliant. And um, before we go, do you have any closing thoughts? And also, if you are on social ma media, make sure that you let everyone know how they can follow you as well. Let's go first, Mark. All right. So, yeah, if you want to follow me at uh, uh, Twitter, Mark D. Lederbach is where what my handle is there. And I'm also on Facebook. I don't do a ton of other work on social media. Evan's the one that's the guru on that for our, <laughs> our team on that. But uh, I want to thank you, by the way, but before we get off, just for giving us this platform. Thank you, Mike. Um, and for me, I you know, this has been a, a joy to come alongside Mark and, and work on this. Um, he, you know, he, like I mentioned earlier, he's the one who, who made me start thinking along these lines years ago as a, as a first semester seminary student, um, who just happened to sign up for an ethics class, not, you know, knew, knew, didn't even know whose class I was signing up for. It just fit my schedule. And, um, it really is the, the providence of God that, um, put me in, in his classroom. And that began a, uh, a long, uh, relationship first as professor and student and now as friends. Um, and colleagues to, to be able to work on this. And so we're excited that this is available and, and just want to let everybody know it's not, you know, it can be used as a textbook. It can be used in a church. It can be used in a lot of different ways. Uh, I'm going to be teaching through it um, in my church this fall on Sunday evening. So there's a lot of different ways that you can use this book. Um, so we encourage you to, um, to get a copy of it. Um, on Twitter, I'm Evan Lino. So E-V-A-N-L-E-N-O-W. Um, you can also find me on Facebook um, and on Instagram. Um, all those, I have the same, it's, it's all the same, just E-V-A-N-L-E-N-O-W. I'm, I'm the only one out there. So uh, nobody else with that name combination. Um, and so, and then also I, I've got a, a website that I'm starting to put a little bit of information on the, about the book and we'll be doing maybe some short snippets from the book and that's evanlino.com. And so uh, feel free to, to go down and check the, check out the website as well. Fantastic. Well, what I'm going to do, I'm going to get all of those social media links, plus the link to your website as well. Plus there'll be a link to the book all in the description below. So no matter where you're listening or watching this interview, you'll be able to grab those links uh, really easily. Make sure that you give Mark and Evan a follow. Guys, thanks again for your time. I've really enjoyed it. God bless thanks, you. David. Thank you. Thank you.